You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight Lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone, and welcome to History of the Second World War members episode number four, The Treaty Cruisers. While the Naval Limitation Treaties, which would begin with the one signed in Washington in 1922, would not be enforced throughout the entire interwar period, they would still have a lasting impact on naval design well into the war years. Until the closing stages of the Pacific War, the vast majority of naval ships in all of the navies around the world were either ships that had been constructed before the treaty was in place, ships that were built directly under the constraints of the treaty, or ships whose design was greatly impacted by the years that every nation spent designing around treaty limitations. In most cases, these constraints meant that ships had to be built smaller than what probably would have happened otherwise. But there was one type of ship that instead of getting smaller due to the treaty actually increased. They, they got larger, and this was a heavy cruiser. Trying to categorize and classify cruisers is a bit confusing. Before the First World War, there were armored, protected, and light cruisers, and after there would be light and heavy classifications of cruisers. And the only real similarity between all cruisers is that they were larger than destroyers, but smaller than battleships or battle cruisers. The reason for the wide range of designs and capabilities with, within the space of a, quote, cruiser, is that cruisers were called upon to complete a wide variety of tasks. Trade protection and commerce raiding would become their most publicized role, with the exploits of ships like the German cruiser Emden during the First World War being front-page news. But cruisers were also important utility ships, scouting for the fleet, hunting down enemy destroyers and cruisers, patrolling, and a whole list of other jobs. All of these different roles would lead to many different designs. But then, during the Washington Naval Conference, they would put in place a very specific set of limits on cruisers. These limits, with a maximum allowable displacement of 10,000 tons and a maximum gun size of 8 inches, would cause every major navy in the world to suddenly treat those limitations not as maximums, but instead the absolute minimum allowable size for new heavy cruisers. In this episode, we will discuss some of the attempts by the major navies around the world to create ships that met these new requirements, and discuss the many trade-offs that they would be forced to make to try and create their own treaty cruisers. 
The inclusion of the 10,000 ton limit in the Washington Treaty was an interesting event because much like the 35,000 ton limit on capital ships, it was not really based on any coherent idea of what was the best or the correct size for a cruiser. It was instead just a number that was simply a, you know, big enough to be able to accommodate cruisers that were under construction at the time of the conference. The British had just finished building a new cruiser, the first of the Hawkins class, which was 10,000 tons and had 7.5 inch guns. This class of ship had been built with the commerce protection role in mind, essentially in response to ships like the Emden, who had done so well during the First World War. The Hawkins class was the first of its kind for the Royal Navy, and it would prove to be a problematic design. The problems with the Hawkins class, which were really intrinsic to trying to fit large guns in a very small frame, would only become apparent later, after the treaty had already used the Hawkins as the template for what a large cruiser should be. The limit, when proposed, was able to gain the support of the American Navy because they wanted to build big cruisers due to the distances that they would likely have to traverse in the Pacific. As I mentioned, there was not a ton of thought given to the technical side of such a limit, as described by Stephen Roskill and Corelli Barnett in Naval Policy Between the Wars, Volume 1, The Period of Anglo-American Antagonism, 1919-1929. Quote, A curious feature of this phase of the negotiations is, however, that neither the British nor the American naval authorities appear to have given any serious thought to the tactical and technical aspects of the decision that future cruisers should be very much larger than almost all existing ships and could be armed with an untried weapon of considerably larger caliber, and the virtual certainty that the naval powers would design their new cruisers right up to the permissible limits seems to have passed unnoticed. Thus, the Conference on Naval Limitation can reasonably be said to have ensured a substantial increase in the size and armament of one important class of ship." End quote. The fact that these new cruisers would certainly outmatch any existing cruisers meant that almost overnight, the conference had created another naval arms race, and instead of designing and building capital ships, the world's navies would soon be trying to design and build the best treaty cruisers. During the design process for the treaty cruisers, there were sacrifices that would have to be made to fit the ships within the available displacement. There were also important considerations given to what other nations would be doing with their own cruisers. For example, one of the features of the ships that was quite important to consider was the other designs and where they were at in terms of speed. No nation wanted their ships to be drastically slower than others and so everybody wanted to make sure their cruisers had the highest possible top speed. However, trying to achieve this speed is where sacrifices would have to be made. To make a ship go faster, it would need more space and weight dedicated to propulsion systems, and with a hard limit on overall ship displacement, that weight would have to come from somewhere. With the equally strong desire to make sure that the largest possible guns were used, 8 inches in diameter, the only place where weight could be saved was in the armor. For a long time, the tradition had been to create, they called them balance ships, which meant that they were designed around the idea that they would have enough armor to match the shells of a ship using the same caliber guns as the ship itself mounted. 
With the tight displacement limits, this arrangement was simply not possible with the treaty cruisers. There was just not enough available tonnage to fit everything that was required, and so the first generation of treaty cruisers, while mounting 8-inch guns, would have armor protection that was barely sufficient to protect them against guns smaller than 6 inches, which at the time were found on a lot of destroyers. Trying to somehow fit all of these requirements into a very small package would be the theme for each of the navies as they tried to develop their own classes of treaty cruisers. Due to the fact that the British had been the cause for the 10,000 ton limit in the first place, we will start our trip around the world with the Royal Navy. After the treaty was put in place, the first generation of designs for the Royal Navy involved a cruiser with eight 8 inch guns mounted in four twin turrets, with two fore and two aft of the superstructure. These guns were mounted in high angle turrets, which theoretically meant that they were capable of being used in an anti aircraft role. Although much like other high-angle turrets designed by the Royal Navy during this period, there were tons of challenges and problems without, with actually making that theory a reality. Most of these issues revolved around the difficulty of creating and operating turrets efficiently while also giving them the ability to shoot at high angles. Now within the design limits, the main armament was provided with 100 rounds per gun. Uh, all of this was later increased to 150 due to weight reductions in later refits. However, these were design limitations for how many rounds could be carried, not the actual limits, which were much higher during the war. There were also dual-purpose 4-inch guns, as well as dedicated anti-aircraft mounts uh, meant for quadruple 2-pound uh, anti-aircraft guns, although these were still under development at the time, and so they would only be mounted later. The initial goal was to allow the ships to reach a top speed of 33 knots, however this proved to be challenging due to the weight limitations and the amount of horsepower required for every additional knot of speed. Therefore, a top speed of 31 knots was eventually settled on, because this could be achieved in 75,000 horsepower instead of 100,000 horsepower, which was required for just two more knots, uh, up to 33. This resulted in a weight savings of about 400 tons. Now, after these designs were accepted by the Navy, the plan was to begin a large building program that would eventually result in the Royal Navy having 17 of these treaty cruisers, which were known as the County Class, and they planned to start off big with eight ships to be laid down in 1924. It was at this point that the political realities of the time began to alter these plans. A labor government was elected in 1924, with the goal of spending less on the military, including the Navy and therefore the total planned number of cruisers was cut in half, although five were still to be laid down in 1924. This was a really big reduction, and it was kind of a sign of the times, because remember, like, the Royal Navy before the First World War was building upwards of, of eight battleships alone every year. I think in, from the period of 1909 to 1910, they laid down eight battleships, the most expensive class of ships to be built at the time. And now they were having trouble justifying the number of cruisers that they wanted. One of the challenges that the Royal Navy was running into was that these new treaty cruisers were much more expensive than the ships that they were replacing. And the requirements of the worldwide trade network of the empire did not really allow the Navy to reduce the number of ships that it needed in total. In hindsight, it almost certainly would have been better for the British to have advocated for a smaller ship displacement in Washington even if it meant sacrificing the Hawkins class, so that it would have been cheaper to build the number of cruisers that were really required by the Royal Navy for it to complete its strategic goals. 
However, this was not the path that they were on, and so instead, they would try to evolve and improve the design of the Treaty Cruisers in future iterations. While the first set of County-class cruisers were just starting construction, they were called the Kent-class, the plans for the next, the London-class, were already being refined. There were changes to the basic design almost immediately, with a slight increase in the overall length of the ships and a reduction in the overall width, with the, which allowed for a slight increase in speed. However, most of these changes were small changes that produced slightly different performance profiles, but did not in any way alter the general characteristics of the ships. The same was true for the final two ships of the county class, which would be laid down in 1927. More ships were planned, but economic realities put those plans on hold, and eventually they were just cancelled. While the number was much smaller than they had hoped for, the Royal Navy was still able to produce 11 treaty cruisers, either in commission or nearing completion at the end of 1930. This was far more than the United States. The Royal Navy also began planning for the future, with plans for a new class of heavy cruisers to be constructed after the treaty limitations were no longer in place, which by the early 1930s looked to be a question of when and not if. If built, they would have been closer to 20,000 tons instead of 10,000, with almost four times the amount of armored protection. This would have put them roughly on par with some pre-war World War I uh, battleships, which had participated in the Battle of Jutland. However, these larger cruisers would never make it off the drawing boards before the beginning of the Second World War, at which point they were abandoned to allow greater focus on more important concerns. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly two million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. While the Royal Navy had started the design of treaty cruisers immediately after the conference, and had then started construction as early as 1924, the United States would be a bit more delayed. This meant that the first treaty cruisers for the United States were not laid down until 1926, although the United States would eventually build more treaty and heavy cruisers than any other nation. The resulting class of ships, named the Pensacola class, would be heavily influenced by the British Hawkins class, and much like almost every other treaty cruiser, it was designed right up to the displacement limit. The Pensacolas would mount more guns than the British ships, with 10 instead of 8 8-inch guns, and these guns would be configured in, in what I think is a unique arrangement with two double and two triple turrets, but with the triple turrets mounted above the doubles, instead of the more typical opposite arrangement. 
Now this arrangement was put in place because the width of the initial ships could not accommodate the width of the triple turret as far forward and backwards as it would need to be. And these ships would also have a very light complement of anti-aircraft guns, although this would be greatly improved in later refits. While the British had focused their designs on the needs of trade protection, the United States was put a, putting a far greater emphasis on the scouting ability of their cruisers. And with aircraft being so potent in this role, the Pensacolas were given an initial complement of four seaplanes that could be launched from the ship's two catapults. The final displacement of these ships was only about 9,100 tons, well under the treaty limit, due to the absolute bare-bones nature of their protective armor a feature which was seen as a mistake soon after the ships were completed and the United States saw what everybody else was doing. Eventually, only two Pensacola-class ships would be completed, both in 1926, and future ships would be of an enhanced design. The next class of American treaty cruisers would reduce the number of guns down to nine, with the decision made based on the actions of foreign navies. The idea was that with most of their navies uh, opting to only mount eight 8-inch guns, the United States could subtract one gun to save some weight for use on other items. It would still give it nine guns, which were mounted in three triple turrets, which would still give some superiority in fire, but did not necessitate a fourth turret and the weight and design restrictions that four turrets entailed. This change would first appear in the Northampton class, which was laid down in 1928. The switch to a three-turret layout also provided more space for aircraft facilities aboard ship, which satisfied the desire to ensure that the ships were potent fleet scouts. The Northamptons would incorporate the largest changes that would be made on the American side of the treaty cruiser design. Future classes like the Portland and New Orleans class contained evolutionary changes, but nothing truly revolutionary. The most important change would come in the New Orleans when the extra weight which had not been used in previous treaty cruisers was utilized by increasing the amount of armor provided. By the time that the New Orleans class was launched in the mid-1930s, the amount of armor being provided for American treaty cruisers had doubled. The last treaty cruiser built by the United States would be the USS Wichita, which would leave the Navy with 18 heavy cruisers in total. This is all that would be built under the confines of the treaty, which would be altered at the London Naval Conference in 1930 to put an upper limit on the total cruiser tonnage that the navies could possess. The next class of United States heavy cruisers would no longer obey treaty limitations, with the Baltimore class displacing 14,000 tons. While the Baltimore ships do not fall under the category of treaty cruisers, given their relation to previous cruisers, that they are probably still worth discussing here. Now, unlike some other nations which basically stopped making heavy cruisers when the treaty lapsed, the United States would really double down on their construction for use in the Pacific. 24 Baltimore-class ships were ordered, although only 18 would actually be completed before the end of the war, with only 6 arriving in time to see meaningful action. There were then plans for a Des Moines class of ships, of which there would have been 12, but only 3 were completed. By the time that these final ships were being constructed in the final stages of the war, their armament had shifted, and while they still mounted the same number of large guns, the anti-aircraft armament on each ship had exploded in number. It should also probably be mentioned that while the numbers of ships under construction for the U.S. Navy seem incredibly large uh, for this type of ship, 
This was partially due to the fact that in 1945, the Americans were building a colossal number of ships of all types, most of which would not be completed before the war ended. The last of the Des Moines class, uh, the Newport News, wouldn't be decommissioned until 1975, making it the last of the treaty-influenced heavy cruisers, which mounted the 8-inch guns, to see active service. For Japan, the treaty cruisers maintained a special place within naval plans because they were the largest ships which were not limited by the treaty. This meant that the Japanese could theoretically build as many treaty cruisers as they wanted, at least under the initial treaty. And so they saw this type of ship as a way to at least in some way offset the disadvantage that they were forced to accept in capital ships. The first set of designs was the Miyoko class, and they, like the American ships, mounted 10 8-inch guns in 5 double turrets. The Japanese would claim that this all fit within a 10,000 ton displacement, but the actual displacement was probably closer to 11,000. All four of the Miyoko class cruisers would be completed by 1928, at which point at which point work began on the next class, which was just an evolutionary design of the Miyoko. There were soon plans for another class of ships, but then the London Naval Conference occurred and a cap on the heavy cruisers available for Japan was put in place, and Japan was already at its limit of 12 ships, that which meant that it could not create any more. While technically this prevented uh, further Japanese treaty cruisers, they were able to get around this by continuing to build what they called light cruisers, which had a tonnage limitation of 8,500 tons. This would result in the Mogami class, which mounted 6-inch guns, the maximum allowable for the type, but would mount 15 of them. The Mogamis would also mount four triple torpedo tubes, which was the standard torpedo setup for all Japanese treaty cruisers. Trying to fit all of this in an 8,500 ton limit was pretty much impossible, and the standard displacement of the Mogamis was actually much closer to the 10,000 ton limit for treaty cruisers. There were some design issues with these ships, mostly revolving around stability at sea, and some issues with the welding on the hull, and this would cause a series of necessary modifications to be made to for the first two ships after they were completed, and to the final two ships of the class while they were still under construction. These alterations led to further increases in displacement. After Japan exited the Washington Treaty System, they would build the Tone class of, of heavy cruisers, which had a displacement well above 10,000 tons. These ships would mount only 8 8-inch guns, but they were all mounted forward of the superstructure, with the areas behind the superstructure devoted solely to aircraft operations. This allowed for six seaplanes to be carried for use by the ship. There were plans for another class of cruisers, the Ibuki class, which would have been an even larger version of the Mogami design, but they were not completed. The Ibuki would not be launched until May 1943, but at that point construction was put on hold while attempts were made to turn the ship into an aircraft carrier, a work that was never completed. While the three largest navies would produce the largest number of treaty cruisers, other nations would also join in their design and construction, just in smaller numbers. For the Italians, the first set of treaty cruisers would belong to the Trento class, of which there would be two built starting in 1925. They would have a pretty standard armament of, you know, eight 8-inch eight guns in twin turrets. 
The Italians had some advantages over the big three navies, in that their position in the Mediterranean meant that overall range and endurance was far less important. Instead, they emphasized speed, and the Trento class had a design speed of above 35 knots. This would be achieved by foregoing armor almost entirely, so that more weight and space could be devoted to propulsion machinery. In the next class, the Zara class, there was some pullback on this, and the top speed would be set at just 29 knots. Now, this allowed for ships to be shorter, and the after torpedo armament was removed, and the complement of aircraft reduced to just two, all of which saved up about 1,500 tons to dedicate to protection. However, even with all of these efforts to save weight, the final displacement of this class would still be well over 11,000 tons. The French were in a similar position. They put a much smaller emphasis on range with their first set of treaty cruisers, the Suffren class, which, which had close to half the range of their British counterparts. However, a top speed of 35 knots was recorded during trials, and, and unlike the Italian cruisers, the French were also able to use a hull design which retained more of that top speed when the ship was fully loaded, so it could go faster under, like, real circumstances. The Italian Trento class generally lost over 6 knots when fully loaded, whereas the French were able to keep their speed above 30 knots, which was definitely faster than the Italians in war situations. These French ships also put much greater emphasis on torpedo armament when compared with most of their European counterparts, and they would mount 12 torpedo tubes in four triple turrets. In 1930, the first of the next generation of French treaty cruisers was laid down, the Augere, and with one of the new design requirements for the ship being protection from at least 6-inch guns, which were starting to be mounted on more and more Italian ships during this period. This meant that more weight had to be devoted to armor. Now, one of the major changes that allowed this to happen was a reduction in machinery weight by about 275 tons, but also a large reduction in machinery size, which required a far smaller area of armored protection for the ship. There is a school of thought that the Algere was probably the best treaty cruiser to be built. Now, as much as people love to compare weapon systems to talk about which is best, looking at you, T-34, Tiger, Sherman discussions, it's really hard to prove such an assertion, even under the best possible circumstances. But with these French ships, due to their very small operation history, it's, it's almost impossible, because they would be scuttled with the rest of the French fleet in 1942, after seeing basically no real action. The final navy that built something like a treaty cruiser was the German navy. Now, technically, their answer to treaty cruisers being built by other nations were not actually treaty cruisers, but Panzerschiff, or armored ships, in what would be called the Deutschland class. The three ships of this class would at least publicly obey some of the limits placed on treaty cruisers, like the 10,000 ton displacement limit, but they would also mount six 11-inch guns within that weight. Just like several other navies, these ships were not actually within the 10,000-ton limit, and they went over by several hundred ton. But with so many nations also playing a bit fast and loose with actual displacement numbers, it's hard to blame the Germans for this problem. 
The Deutschland class would be unique in that they would be propelled by diesel engines, which provided savings in weight, size, and offered much greater endurance. It allowed the ships to have almost twice the range of their British uh, contemporary ships. The diesels were considered so successful that there was a strong push to use them on the next set of German cruisers, the Admiral Hipper class. Those ships would come in at 14,000 tons and would have been the largest ships at the time to, to mount the diesel engines. There was even some debate about the possibility of using the diesels on the Bismarck-class battleships. It wouldn't get very far, but it was there, and it was because of the success of the diesel engines in the Deutschland-class. The exploits of at least one of these Deutschland-class Panzer Schiff would be dis- will be discussed in much greater detail in later podcast episodes. I hope you've enjoyed this episode, a kind of a, a deep dive into some of the technical aspects of the treaty cruisers. Next week, we are going to continue on the naval theme, partially due to my inability to get a few sources because of what's happening in the world here in spring and early summer uh, 2020. And we're going to talk about the uh, Japanese Navy and its evolution from its founding in the, in the 1800s up through the interwar period, what it thought the war would be like, how it planned for that war, what that meant for its ship design, 